Our scripture today is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. You have been following with me through the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says that unless we possess a greater righteousness than the best type of religion and good behavior and self-justifying humanity can concoct, unless we have a greater righteousness than that, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We need his righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now at this point, he's going to illustrate this greater righteousness in terms of sexual purity um, versus lust. Uh, this is the point where uh, some of you parents who may have uh, middle schoolers sitting with you uh, need to just be aware that your kids may be asking you some questions later today. I'll leave that to you. Um, and I meant to email you earlier this week and say, hey, guess what the sermon's going to be about? And I forgot. Sorry, here we are. <laughs> if you were paying attention last week, you would have seen the passage for this week. Anyway, it's, it's, it's my bad. You know, it's been said actually, and it's been said of our society uh, that there are basically two prevailing views on sexuality. If you, if, if you look at our society and boil it all down to two general ideas about sex, it's this, sex is a God or sex is bad. Sex is God or sex is bad. Um, Sex is God, obviously, is a secular idea, and it feeds on unrestrained desire. That sex is a need. That sex is a right. That sex is the ultimate form of human expression. That unlike anything else in life, your sexuality, defining your sexuality, redefining your sexuality, inventing yourself through your sexuality is um, the ultimate type of freedom. Uh, for example, uh, in the Super Bowl halftime last week, there was, at least in one of the performers, uh, an example of how our culture promotes the idea that sex is God. But there's also this lingering thing, and it's stereotyp stereotypically religious, uh, that sex is bad. And this feeds on ideas like guilt and shame. Uh, that besides procreation, having children, sex is basically dirty and it's dangerous. For example, uh, many of us were raised in churches where we cannot remember sexuality presented to us in a positive, productive way. Some folks here may feel, um, some folks here may feel sexually frustrated at this point in their lives or know what it was like to feel that way or sexually confused 
or uh, for your worldview, you feel like a sexual outcast in this society or maybe even in the church. Uh, Some of us, on the other hand, may have uh, secret hidden guilt or shame about our sexual history or about our sexual habits. Now, you've heard me say this before, especially in the First Corinthians series last year. Uh, We are all sexually broken people. The fall of humanity into sin has even pervaded human sexuality. We're all broken sexually. Uh, But I've also said uh, that we're all suffering for, we're all suffering from a form of spiritual heart disease. Uh, The Bible tells us that our hearts desire what is not good for us, what God did not intend for us, and, and, and that our hearts even desire good things in inappropriate ways or at inappropriate times. Uh, so we are all sexually broken, the Bible tells us, but, but our hearts are spiritually sick as well. And when you put those two things together, uh, you have a problem. Now, the Bible shows us that sex is great. Never forget that. Sex is great. I hope you will remember some of you when you grow up that you heard your pastor in a Christian church say, sex is great. But it's broken. Sex is broken in this world. And the truth of the Bible is that sex is redeemable. It's great, it's broken, but it's redeemable. And that redemption, that healing, that clarity, it requires an inward transformation, inner transformation, not just what we do on the outside, not just how we appear to be acting, but an inward transformation. And I hope you will see today from the Sermon on the Mount that sexual purity and healing require the transformation of our hearts. And biblically speaking, the heart is not just your emotions. The heart is the inner person, the true you, the hidden you, your soul. In biblical terms, the heart overlaps with how we understand the mind and the will to be. And I want to talk to you today. I want to talk to you today about um, the sins that we commit, the sins that we must give up, and the grace that we must take up. For healing in our sexuality to take place, I want to talk to you about the sins that we commit, the sins we must give up, and the grace that we must take up. Now, uh, the sexual sins that people commit are the result of our misguided hearts, hearts with wrong desires. Now remember, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount in this particular portion of it, Jesus is responding to several misinterpretations of the law of Moses that the rabbis and the religious leaders of his day had been traditionally teaching the people of Israel. He's responding to traditional interpretations about the law of Moses with his understanding as the writer of the law of the law's original intent, what it truly meant. And as he's in this process, he says in verse 27, he opens up by saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And you may be thinking, well, what's wrong with that, Jesus? Because he's quoting, you you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting verbatim the Old Testament. It's the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20. 
So what's the problem? Well, the answer to that problem is found in Jesus's response to the statement. He goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Literally, uh, the phrase looks at a woman with lustful intent, in the original language, it is whoever looks at a woman in order to desire her. And the word for desire is the same word for covet. Okay? So, Physical adultery, Jesus, actually physical adultery. Now, you got to realize he's talking, to, he's talking mostly to good Jewish people living in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Uh, adultery, physical adultery was not a rampant problem in the society in which Jesus is speaking. It wasn't like the Greeks and the Romans around them, not, not the traditional Jews. Uh, so therefore, they would think, well, we're doing fine. You know, the family's intact. I've been faithful to my spouse. Uh, everything's okay. But what's the 10th commandment? Anyone know what the 10th commandment is? Right, don't covet. As a matter of fact, it says in the 10th commandment not to, cover, not to covet many things, but specifically, Exodus 20, chapter seven, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, so... The act of adultery, therefore, springs from the heart condition of coveting. This is what Jesus is getting at. You think you're clean on the outside. You think your record looks good. What's going on on the inside? What's going on in your heart? He's always going to bring his listeners back to the heart, getting beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Now, to be clear, Jesus was not condemning here natural beauty or, or an attraction to natural beauty. Okay? It's no sin to be attractive. It's no sin to make yourself look attractive. It is not a sin to notice an attractive person. That's, see, I'm trying to hit on the sex is dirty, the sex is bad problem that religious communities tend to have. Right? Being attractive and noticing an attractive or, or noticing someone who strikes you as beautiful is not a sin. Um, but when our imaginations, which as one author says, is, is seed, our imaginations are seated in our hearts. When our imaginations covet who does not belong to us, we break God's law. Now, um, it's common for men, and please understand, because you're going to find all sorts of loopholes here, uh, please understand that I'm talking in generalities. Um, it, it is most common for men to covet uh, somebody's body or to covet, uh, to covet gratification and satisfaction. It is most common for women to covet devotion. Uh, to covet a relationship. And another way of saying this is men typically covet a body or an experience that God has not entrusted to them. Women tend to covet a soul that God has not entrusted to them. Jesus is concerned, therefore, with the misguided desires of our hearts that fuel our sexual choices. An old St. Augustine, the church father, Augustine of Hippo, he, he described, in talking about this passage, he described the inward process 
of how temptation can lead to sin right in our hearts without anybody else uh, even noticing it. Uh, And I think even though he lived a long time ago, he did a really good job at describing this. He basically describes uh, three stages in in the digression uh, from temptation uh, to sin. He says, first of all, something has to be suggested suggested to you. There has to be the suggestion of something that you find attractive or beautiful. Uh, and, and, and again, in and of itself, that's not a problem. Uh, some attractive person may just walk by you, or you may be in the grocery store waiting online and notice one of the mag- magazines is v- visibly tempting to you, or you may just meet somebody that you really enjoy being around. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the suggestion of something good and beautiful and attractive. But then you discover the pleasure in it. Still no sin. You discover with that thing or with that person or with that experience that you take natural pleasure in it or in them. Again, sin hasn't happened yet. Augustine said it's when it moves beyond pleasure to consent that we sin. He says when we discover that that thing or that practice or that person or that situation is delightful and attractive to us, it's at that point, Augustine says, that it must be restrained. Once it becomes apparent to you that you delight in it or in them, um, it must be restrained, and he says, by the right of reason. It must be restrained by the right of reason. And I'll get back to that phrase in a little bit. He goes on to say, but if consent shall take place, the sin will be complete. Known to God in our heart, listen to this, known to God in our heart, although it may not become known to men by our deed. Christians, actually Christ, if you're a Christ follower, Christ desires that his disciples pursue sexual purity, not only outwardly, but inwardly. Now, the idea of purity, now please don't, don't interpret purity for, for our, our, our purposes today as perfection, as static, constant perfection. Stop thinking that way for now. Think of purity as a purification process. Think of purifying yourself gradually, more and more. That concept, I think, The concept of purification, ongoing, increasing purification, I think will help us interpret the strange way that Jesus is now going to apply what he's saying. Have you noticed it? He has this strange application regarding the sexual sins that we must, for his sake, give up. He says, if your right eye or he goes on to say, if your right hand, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it off. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Okay, oh boy. Well, look, the literalistic interpretation and response to this is not the way to go. So the church father, Oregon of Alexandria, allegedly had himself castrated by a doctor trying to take passages like this literally. In order to pursue sexual holiness, because he was a teacher, he was teaching men and women, he decided to have himself castrated. I I hope we can all agree that that's not 
what Jesus wants us to do, okay? Um, you know, Jesus, when he said, cut off your pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand. He's, he, he wasn't envisioning like a, um, I don't know, a crew of one-eyed, <laughs> one, you know, one, one-handed Christians. It's, I mean, it's like kind of rem- like a church full of pirates or something, you know, like, Almighty, blessed be the pure in spirit, for theirs be the kingdom of heaven. It, it, can just, he, that's not what he's trying to do here. That'd be kind of interesting. I'm sure somebody will plant a church for pirates one day, and I would love to visit that church. When Jesus says your right hand, when Jesus says your right eye, think about the ancients. They literally thought that your right hand was your more important hand. Most people were right-handed and left-handedness was discouraged. So if you think of it that way from a cultural perspective, when he says your right hand, when he says your right eye, he means the the most important part, the, the, the part you need the most essential, the most indispensable part of you. Get rid of it if it causes you to sin. Actually, again, St. Augustine, he said that what, what he's talking about, the, 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 the right hand, the right eye, in another place in, in Matthew, he says the right foot. Um, oh, see there, the pegged leg, it's perfect. This whole pirate thing, it really does work. Anyway, Augustine said what Jesus is really aiming in, here, in on here is that thing, that habit, even that person that you most cherish that is leading you away from the law of God, that is leading you away from God's righteousness and good intentions for his people. This is the point, this is the point, going back to what Augustine said earlier, this is the point in your struggle against temptation to sin. This is the point where you must restrain your potential delight in something by the right of reason. And the Puritans called this the mortification of sin. Actually, one of the Puritans wrote a book about it. The mortification of sin, the killing the crucifying of sin in our lives every day. And the Apostle Paul would put this principle this way, Galatians chapter five. He said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Flesh there means the sinful nature, the part of you that is broken, that wants the wrong things. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So the Christ follower, literally, but in a spiritual sense, the Christ follower kills their sinful desires daily. Rosaria Butterfield, in in her book, uh, the um, actually, you really should, if you don't know of her story, Um, her story and uh, her witness and her ministry, you really should read about her. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert says, uh, speaking of this issue of, of killing our sin daily, she says, sexual sin is predatory. It won't be healed by redeeming the context. She means changing the situation or the circumstances, like a quick fix. She says, uh, sexual sin uh, won't be redeemed or healed uh, by changing uh, the genders. She means your attraction, your natural attraction, or what you 
would believe to be your natural orientation. She says that that's not what changes uh, sexual sin. She says sexual sin must simply be killed. What is left of your sexuality after this annihilation is up to God. But the healing, healing to the sexual sinner is death, nothing more and nothing less. Now, please understand, she's not talking about suicide. She's talking about the spiritual killing of the desires of your heart that go against God's good purposes for you and the people around you. And this is a woman who literally, she writes, uh, because of the process she went through of sexual healing and identity, she says, I lost everything but the dog. Coming to Jesus and allowing Jesus to change her, she lost everything. And she says, sexual sin simply must be killed, not reasoned with or pampered. And so I would suggest today that we apply this idea, mortification of sin, that we apply it in several ways. And I can only mention a few right now. One, we don't wait for a more convenient time to address a problem. Now. We deal with it now. We don't carry the burden alone. This is a big one. We don't carry the burden alone, but we seek out trusted people to help us. We seek out trusted people to help us mortify and kill the sin. This means we don't simply look for a person or a friend or even a professional, professional counselor or therapist who will help us coddle the desire and nurse it. We want to find help, whether it's personal, layman, professional, who will help us kill the desire in us. Another one. We don't seek accountability from equally struggling people. We seek community with equally struggling people, but we do not seek accountability from people who are struggling with the same thing as we are at the same time. My college buddies and I, as young men, discovered that it was a failure to get together and talk to one another and pray for each other about our sexual lusts. It got us nowhere. There was nobody in the conversation. There was nobody in the room we looked up to and respected and didn't want to disappoint. Don't seek accountability from equally struggling people. And so, as John Stott once wrote, you live as if you have plucked out your right eye. You live as if you have cut off your right hand. But even more than mortifying the flesh in us, mortifying sin in us, there's... there's <laughs> There's a really positive side to this struggle. We recommit our sexuality to God's good purposes. This is back to the sex is great and sexuality is beautiful idea that religion often misses but that the Bible has been saying for a thousand years and that Jesus even blessed. His first, wed his first, his first miracle recorded was at a wedding. Pursue sexual holiness to honor the God who created you as a sexual being. You know, 
it says in Proverbs, Proverbs 5, the teacher says to his son, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be, it says, be intoxicated always in her love. This is the Bible. Let's go on. The Song of Solomon, the, the bride says of her groom, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory. Stop for a second. The Hebrew for the expression, his body is polished ivory. Many scholars believe that our English translations are way too modest in how they interpret it. I'll let you figure it out. Bedecked with sapphires, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. And then listen to what she says. This is my beloved and this is my friend. I'm just trying to show you, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to show you that God has a wonderfully positive plan for sexuality. So that if you are married, you both get to say, a woman and a man get to say to one another, and I'll use the words of Tim and Kathy Keller, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. They say that is, that is the only thing that marital sex should be saying. I belong completely, permanently, exclusively to you. And listen, if you're single, if you're single just for now, or if you may be single for a long time or forever, you still get to say, but just slightly differently, you get to say, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to Jesus. He even calls his people his bride. So ask God and his people, that's the key. Ask God and his people to help you Mortify your sinful desires every day. Now, beneath your struggle to give up a sin or a habit or a person or an ideology, a worldview, a perspective, whatever it is, beneath your struggle to give it up, whatever it is you're thinking about right now, your struggle to give that up is your pride. What's beneath that struggle is your pride. And please, I mean this respectfully. I'm not saying that you're arrogant. Some of you probably are arrogant, but that's not what I mean by your pride. Some of us are arrogant, but I mean, what I mean by pride in this situation is not arrogance or hubris. What I mean is a heart that is unwilling to trust God. A heart that is unwilling to trust your creator that he knows what's best for you, that he prescribes what is best for your healing and transformation. If you will only listen to him. The Apostle Paul could relate single man all his life and for a long time he was a single man as a super professional holy Pharisee. Can you imagine? But he would say after he became a Christian, after he became a Christian, he said, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you not prayed that way? Have you not thought that to yourself? Wretched person am I who will deliver me from this body of death? But he goes on. He doesn't end it there. He doesn't end it there. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your only comfort in giving up sexual sin, your only relief 
and satisfaction and giving up sexual sin is taking up, this is the other side of the coin, is taking up God's grace. You're not just throwing something away. You're receiving something else and bringing it along with you. This is why the scriptures say, you died to sin, now live for righteousness. Jesus bought you at a price. You're not your own. Now live for him. Your identity has changed. You have to lay down your sin and you have to pick up the grace of God and carry it with you. In Romans chapter five, a little bit earlier in that book, uh, Paul would say, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. No longer condemnation as sexual sinners. The grace of God, the favor of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God as sexually healed people. He says, this grace in which we stand, and he goes on to say, this, this is why it's possible. This is why Paul could talk this way and find hope despite the fact that he knew he was a wretched person on the inside. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the foundation. The love of God, the love of God for you poured into your heart by his Holy Spirit. That that promises that peace is yours, that joy is yours, that hope is yours if you will kill your sin and give your heart to him, right? And he promises that us because it says that by his grace, his love has been poured into our hearts. Uh, That is the most satisfaction and gratification and relief and comfort that we can ever receive for any struggle. That, the, that God has poured his love into our hearts. Is, is there anything in the universe that is more powerful than the love of God? Apply that to your struggle. Christ gave up his life. He didn't just give up something. He gave up his life. He gave up his throne. He gave up his perfect divine reputation. And he went to the cross and he took up your sins. He gave up his reputation, and he took up your sin and nailed it to the cross. Now you give up your sinful desires. Every day, give them up for the one who loved you that much to do that for you. Rosaria, actually not Rosaria Butterfield, I'm sorry. A guy named David White. We have his literature on our book table. You should look at it, it's great. David White, David White writes, freedom is not total deliverance from temptation. I mean, that's what we wish it would be. Freedom is the increasing ability to choose holiness out of a love for Christ, despite the relentlessness of temptation. This is the hard truth, but the blessing is that we receive more of Christ as we are committed to the fight. It is a lifelong fight, David White writes. But as we kill our sin in us, we, we receive more of Christ and wake up more and more to his love for us that he's poured into our hearts. And that is a power and a satisfaction that continues with us through our journey. More, more critical for this fight that we're in, friends, especially in our society today, uh, more critical for this fight than the studies 
we share together, uh, the accountability support groups, Bible studies that we're in, more important for us than the counseling we receive or look for, more important than the books we read is Jesus who loves you. You need healthy versions of all of that, but more critical than any of it is Jesus who loves you. He's got to be at the center of your heart in this fight. Once again, Rosaria Butterfield, she said, let me read this, one of the last things I'm going to say. She says, too many young Christian fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Masturbators plan that marriage will redeem their patterns. Internet pornographers think that having legitimate sex will take away the desire to have illicit sex. They're wrong, she writes. She concludes by saying, marriage doesn't redeem sin. Only Jesus himself can do that. Whatever the techniques, whatever the accountability structures, whatever good things you and I put in place, rightly so, to kill sin in us every day, none of those things, none of those things redeem sin the blood of Jesus Christ. The love of the risen Jesus Christ poured into our hearts is what redeems our sin. And so when Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, he meant it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who truly just desire one thing, whose lives are not all that complicated whose lives realize that what they need more than anything else is Jesus and his forgiveness and his love. As the purity of their desire for Jesus increases, they discover that they are winning the battle against sexual sin when Jesus becomes what they desire the most. Sexual purity and healing require the transformation of our hearts to want Christ more. And I'm speaking from experience. We're all on the same level here. Ask Jesus and his people. I encourage you, I invite you, I challenge you to ask Jesus and his people for help to kill your sinful desires every day. He will not let you down. He will not let you down. God's grace, and never forget this, God's grace is available daily to those who desire Jesus in their hearts. Let's pray. Our grateful God, we, we conclude a difficult, uh, difficult topic and conversation, but an exciting one and, and, and a beautiful one with the hope uh, that it is not our outward appearances. It is, it is not even our inward attempts to be holy that has justified us as clean and good and forgiven and loved in your sight. It is Jesus who has justified us. It is his perfect record. I pray that you would fill us with your love and with such a love for your son who gave up everything for us to be with you, that we would be willing to give these things up out of a love for him. Would you do that in our congregation, Father? Would you do that in our culture? It is so hard today. Would you do that in each of us? Amen.